This is Paul Steinmetz. I uh, run the public relations and community affairs operation at Western Connecticut State University, where we are recording this podcast for worldwide dissemination. Today, my guest is Lionel Bascom. He's a professor of writing here at WestCon, and he uh, has also had a few other careers, including newspaper man. That's where I first met him. If you uh, come to Danbury, you'll either meet Lionel or somebody he's related to, because about half of Danbury is related to him. <laughs> They're all very nice people. But today we're going to talk about his latest book. Lionel's a scholar and an author. He's written several books, and he just published this year a new book about the Harlem Renaissance. It's called Harlem, the Crucible of Modern African-American Culture. And Lionel, what I'm struck with when I read this book is that you found a, uh, and you create a picture of a Harlem that I think most people now anyway are unfamiliar with. They don't know this Harlem. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, because <clears throat> there's, a, there's an image of Harlem that reaches back into the 1920s when Duke Ellington was there and uh, Zora Neale Hurston was there and uh, 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 a number of celebrities, uh, uh, Count Basie, and that's what people remember. If you ask someone what they know or think about Harlem, the first thing they'll they'll say is the Cotton Club. Mm-hmm. Well, the Cotton Club was not uh, 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 an icon for uh, for African Americans. It was a segregated club owned by mobsters, and people who lived in Harlem couldn't go to the Cotton Club. So what? has happened is this this image of, of Harlem as a, a place to go to, 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 to party and to dance and then hear new music is the one that lingers but there there's another uh, another quiet more uh, 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 serious uh, Harlem where um, in the 1920s uh, a number of scholars and uh, uh, civil architects came to Harlem and they had visions and they wanted to um, create a new image of African Americans. And at the time, the Negro was uh, not uh, very well uh, received in America. America was very segregated. And so you had people like W.E.B. Du Bois who came to Harlem. Uh, He was one of the founders of the NAACP, and he created a magazine called Crisis, uh, which I write for, actually. Uh, It's still still in print. And um, the Crisis was a beacon for African Americans all over the world to discuss their uh, uh, their problems, their common problems. Um, at the time, lynching was one of their common problems, mm-hmm. and so the crisis began to count how many lynchings occurred every month uh, when it came out, and so it would be a little column about about that. Uh, there were other uh, uh, parts where they, pu- they published African-American poetry and literature, uh, which uh, was, you couldn't find anywhere else because there was no one publishing that work. But over the years, these... Um, these um, icons of uh, uh, social uh, change and civil rights uh, began to construct individually uh, different campaigns to um, better the lives of black people in the United States. Uh, And Harlem was a mecca for black people all over the world. And so they created, for example, the um, March on Washington movement, um, which I believe was established around 1940 mm-hmm. uh, by uh, A. Philip Randolph, who was also the uh, founder of the first black union, the uh, Porter's Union. And what the, uh, 
so the uh, March on Washington movement did is uh, they began to demand social change from Washington by going down and negotiating with the presidents, uh, whoever was in office, who was in the White House at the time. And they negotiated. And A. Philip Randolph was a labor leader, so he knew how to negotiate, and he also knew how to compromise. Uh, now, this was going on in 1940, long after everyone said the Harlem Renaissance had died. The, mm-hmm. the myth is that the, the romantic fiction about the Harlem Renaissance is that uh, it began sometime in 1924 and uh, ended exactly 1929. So I, I see this number in all the books, and I, I want to know, well, what evidence, what, what ended, exactly what ended? Uh, Langston Hughes was still in Harlem. Um, Ralph Ellison was still in Harlem. Dorothy West was still in Harlem. Uh, a. Philip Randolph was still in Harlem. Uh, and I can't, I couldn't justify that, that year, because nothing ended in 1929 except mm-hmm. the American stock market crashed. Mm-hmm. And people who used to come uptown uh, stopped coming uptown. People who used to be patrons of the arts for people uptown stopped being patrons. Mm-hmm. That did end. But uh, Langston Hughes still wrote. Zerone Hurston still wrote. Duke Ellington still composed his music. Uh, uh, Louis Armstrong still was in Harlem singing and doing what he did on his trumpet. Uh, anyway, and these movements, these social movements, quietly did the work of, uh, of leaders, quietly. Um, in the 1930s, a man named Thurgood Marshall left Baltimore and came to New York. He was lured there by his law professor at Howard University. And what they did was they became the leaders of a team of black lawyers from all over the country who began to construct uh, ways to dismantle legal segregation in the United States. And it took them years. But they did it out of a storefront in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And uh, these lawyers would convene in, at Howard, in, at Washington, at very, uh, various times when they were getting ready to launch a new legal strategy somewhere in the country. And they went around the country defending uh, defendants for all kinds of crimes, and they also filed lawsuits, uh, uh, basically uh, to an attempt to dismantle legal uh, uh, segregation in public schools. Uh, and they uh, eventually succeeded, now again working out of the storefront in Harlem, uh, in arguing before the Supreme Court, uh, Brown versus Board of Education. And the Supreme Court ruled that legal segregation actually harms black children. And that was the end of legal segregation, uh, uh, legally. Mm-hmm. It didn't end immediately, but it was the beginning of dismantling this segregation all over the country. So that that's some of the... Uh, those are stories about some of the people who were remained in Harlem all these years for decades, mm-hmm. uh, right into the 1960s. The uh, um, uh, Martin Luther King uh, was on the scene, not in Harlem necessarily, but he was around in the country in the 1960s when he attempted to get John F. Kennedy and the Democrats to pass for the first time a civil rights act that was would be sweeping and, and would sort of end all kinds of segregation. Now, prior to that. The March on Washington movement um, uh, negotiated with uh, the, the administration to uh, first uh, desegregate the military. The military was completely segregated. This is in the 1940s. Yes, in the 1940s. Uh, and uh, that took a while. It was a compromise. And A. Philip Randolph took the rap when he got back to New York because they said, you, you caved in. What he asked for was for the president to end segregation everywhere in the United States. And... 
uh, I believe it was uh, FDR said that it would be political suicide to even attempt such a thing, and he couldn't do it. And so uh, some of the factions in Harlem who didn't always agree with each other said that he had sold out, and he said, no, you don't understand. It's a compromise. And when you go to the table to negotiate, you have to be willing to compromise. And you don't always get what you want, but you need to leave, what, all you want is to leave the table with something more than you had when you, when you walked in the room. That's the, that's the point of, of, of compromise. And what he got from FDR was uh, opening of all federal contracts to black business people, right? Yes, he got that, got that too. And then Truman uh, later uh, desegregated the army, right? What A. Philip Randolph did really led to the desegregation of the army a few years later. Yeah, but he opened the door and he mm-hmm. opened the conversation. No one was having that con- mm-hmm. congregation before. And you have to remember that America was a very different place than it is now. And and while people don't remember that, they don't know. And, you know, the millennials have no idea what, uh, what America was like, but there was a... Uh, a, a it was a book published in Harlem every year called The Green Book. And in The Green Book, black people traveling around the country could find out where they could actually spend the night somewhere, where they could get food safely, where they could get gas safely. And at the time, there were more than 10,000 towns in the United States that were called sundown towns. Mm-hmm. And what that meant to African Americans is, you, you better be out of town by sundown. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't, there were all kinds of consequences. Uh, and people don't understand that. But you look at old footage of chain gangs. You could be thrown in jail in Georgia or North Carolina or South Carolina because you don't have a, you didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. And you could be considered a vagrant and thrown in jail. And next thing you know, you're working on a chain gang. What happened to him? Oh, he's in he's in jail. He's on a, in a, on a chain gang. No trial. No mm-hmm. jury. The sheriff mm-hmm. had the authority to to do this, you know, and you could you could disappear for years mm-hmm. without being found. So this green book was published in Harlem too, and it was a, a, a safety measure that people used to get around the, the country safely. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't use public transportation because of the Jim Crow laws. You know, you had to sit in the back of the bus or in some some awful part of the train, and so a lot of uh, my father's friends all had big cars, uh, big Oldsmobiles and big Buicks. And you say, well, how, do, how do these working class people get these big cars? They got them so that they could take the whole family back down south mm-hmm. in the summer or on, ho- on holidays. <laughs> and so that was another thing that was produced in, in Harlem uh, for the good of the, you know, the, 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 the country. Um, so Harlem, uh, that's the Harlem that I uh, discovered uh, as a as a boy, I, I was a, a shoeshine boy at my brother's barbershop in in Harlem, and you know I I believed the stories that I'd heard about Harlem too, and I went there when as 13 or 14 years old, but when I got there, I found I could go to Lenox Avenue uh, any Saturday afternoon and hear enormous enormous uh, uh, wonderful speeches mm-hmm. by all sorts of people from all over the world, Africans, Egyptians, uh, local ministers. Um, and that is a tradition that was, was strong in Harlem. Malcolm X, that's where Malcolm X learned how to be an orator. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malcolm uh, came to Harlem late, but Malcolm's father was, uh, uh, belonged to the Marcus Carvey uh, uh, organization. And so uh, Malcolm's father used to take him to uh, Marcus Garvey rallies uh, as a kid out in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so he got to see, Marcus Garvey was a wonderful speaker and orator. He could fill up Madison Square Garden. If if if, 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 if it got around and he was going to give a speech, he would fill up the garden mm-hmm. because he was such a great speaker. Now, he 
was um, arrested uh, on federal charges and jailed uh, for, I think, five years, and then he was mm -hmm. deported. But that was because J. Edgar Hoover said he was the most dangerous Negro in America. Mm -hmm. He could assemble 35,000 people on a Saturday afternoon in New York City. Uh, uh, this was way before the Internet, but through word of mouth. And J. Edgar Hoover was determined to... Uh, Get, get, deport him, and he and he, he was deported. He was born in the Caribbean, right? Is he was a, he was a Jamaican. Uh. He was Jamaican. So he was he was he was uh, 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 deported back to Jamaica. I don't think he stayed there very long. He went to London hmm. and uh, stayed there for quite quite a while. But uh, Jandy Hoover was also uh, after A. Philip Randolph because he was also a very dangerous man. He could organize. He organized the Pullman Porters into a very strong union, and they had very secret meetings. And the Pullman Company was a very strong, powerful company and did everything they could to break that union. Mm -hmm. uh, but because of their 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 tactics, their secret tactics, and they could assemble uh, uh, meetings all over the country because their their members traveled all over the country. Mm -hmm. So they could have an, a very important board meeting somewhere in Detroit uh, where the company would never find out mm -hmm. uh, that they were meeting and they were organizing that way using all kinds of secret uh, uh, fraternity organizations and the fraternal, uh, the Elks, for example, they could meet in, a, in an Elks club or meet in a uh, the basement of a church, just like the Underground Railroad. You know, they they uh, had strategy sessions mm -hmm. and they figured out how to uh, move themselves, and they got uh, lots of advances. But it took years to do this. In Pullman. Um the, the people who, uh, the Pullman porters were people who worked on the trains, who, uh, they were the serve, they would serve the uh, riders on the trains, right? They were like butlers things. on the train. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they would, you know, work in the dining hall, but they would also, the Pullman, Pullman was famous because he created these sleeping cars. So mm -hmm. you could sleep, you know, overnight accommodations on a train. Mm -hmm. and it was luxurious. And they would make the beds and uh, d deliver, you know, f food to the rooms or uh, more towels and all, all those kinds of services. Same services you'd get in a hotel. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, determined that Randolph was a dangerous man. And he was especially dangerous because, J. I mean, Randolph would go to Washington whenever he wanted to and get an appointment at the White House mm -hmm. and be able to discuss things. And the problem was... Why was the March on Washington movement so powerful? It was powerful because Washington was a little southern segregated town. Mm -hmm. And the threat of bringing 10,000 black people to this little segregated town uh, to start to demand services at their hotels, their restaurants, uh, and, and their libraries would be completely disruptive to the government. So what happened was, uh, I, I had never heard this before, but in the 1940s, Randolph organized this um, um, group or this uh, um, uh, idea that you could, people could march on Washington and just stay there, right, until something happened. It was a, it was a, it was a and now you have to remember what the, what the country was like. Hmm. And, uh, 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 I, I worked for United Press International years ago, and uh, we were headquartered in New York. And for some reason, the, the management decided to move it to, to Washington. And all of we New Yorkers said, we don't want to go to that little southern town. <laughs> and that's what it is. You know, once mm -hmm. you go outside the Beltway, you know, it was a little se segregated southern town. Mm -hmm. And it's surrounded by Virginia and Maryland. And I, I got lost in Maryland one time looking for a... Uh, I was looking for Towson, Maryland, and I left Washington and I, I drove into Maryland 
you know, 45 minutes outside of D.C., and I got lost. I'm on this this road, this country road with these long horse fences. I don't know if you know what horse mm-hmm. fences look like, but they're white, uh, wide board fences. And I see this guy getting his mail. And uh, uh, I stopped and I asked him, you know, which way is Taos in Maryland? And he told me, but what shocked me was he had the deepest Southern accent I could imagine. 30 minutes from D.C. Mm-hmm. So for Randolph to threaten to bring, he threatened to bring 10,000. And, and, but the March on Washington movement was a national movement. They had, they had chapters all over the country. And they formed these chapters within months of announcing that this organization existed. And so people were going to come from all over the country. And they estimated black people. Black people. Mm-hmm. And they estimated that there were going to be 100,000 of them, not mm-hmm. 10,000. Mm-hmm. And this was absolutely terrifying to the administration in Washington. Which was FD, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt. And they feared riots. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was unfounded. There was no evidence that, that, you know, that this kind of assembly would, would cause riots, but they expected to, a backlash. Mm-hmm. And so there would be riots, but not instigated by the, the marchers, mm-hmm. but by people in this who were disturbed in this, this cute little southern town called Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So it worked for decades. That threat, he, he went back repeatedly and made that threat, and he got what he wanted. They never actually had the march, right? Well, the, well until the 1960s. They didn't have the actually march, march until the 1960s when Martin Luther King's people went to Randolph and they said, we would like to convince the administration, which was the Kennedy administration, mm-hmm. to encourage the passage of a, of a sweeping civil rights bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we use your ideas? And he said, I'll, we'll organize the whole thing. So they organized the, the march in Washington in 1963. Unfortunately, Kennedy was murdered uh, before uh, that legislation uh, came on the floor of the House. Mm-hmm. But Johnson was now the president. And the march on Washington occurred in August of 1963. And uh, I went to the march as a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I could see the genius in the way it was organized. I, I got on a train in Danbury, Connecticut, mm-hmm. uh, which is my hometown. Mm-hmm. And, and you were in, the high, in high school and you were the president of the uh, student and AACP, is that right? Right, right. And, and um, uh, I uh, actually lived in New York, but this is my hometown, and mm-hmm. so I was the, the press. I'd come here once a month for the, for meetings with the, the NACP, but, but the marvelous thing was, the shocking thing, we got on this train in Danbury, small town, you know, uh, 60 miles from New York City, and um, we brought, now moving to the South, we knew we had to bring our own food. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what, what to expect in the South, uh, um, and that includes all the stops, from here on the way. So mm-hmm. we, we brought food, we brought water, we brought all kinds of things uh, to uh, sustain us uh, while we got there. Now, what, what Randolph did was, was also genius. Eleanor Roosevelt tried to talk him out of these marches repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, where are these people gonna stay? He said, we're just gonna go to hotels, we're just gonna go to restaurants, we're just gonna go to you know public library bathrooms, we're gonna do just do what everyone else does in Washington. She said, oh, my God, that's going to be horrible. Secretly, what he had done is he had organized the churches, and the churches had agreed to put uh, people up to feed them and to uh, protect them. Mm-hmm. But this was secret. No one knew this uh, except the March on Washington people. So the, the idea was these people were going to ascend on Washington, and it's going to completely disrupt this town. So when we went down, 
this train, the cars, I, we probably had four cars on the train. Mm -hmm. And we never left those cars. We left Connecticut and all the way, they just moved our cars around and attached us to other engines hmm. and other trains. And I don't know how long that train was by the time we got down there, but we didn't move. They didn't move us once. We had no layovers, no changing trains, none of that stuff. And the organizers had, had, had arranged this. They pulled into Union Station in Washington, and then we used Union Station, uh, the, the car, as a hotel. Hmm. So we could sleep, sleep in the car, hmm. and we, had, we were protected. And there were people who outside made sure that we weren't disturbed, mm -hmm. uh, and we we were fearful of uh, of a pushback. We were fearful of some sort of retaliation. Mm -hmm. Never happened, but we didn't know what to do. And then going back, they did the same thing. They took our car, hitched it to uh, an engine, and they took us all the way back to Connecticut. We didn't change trains one time, and that's how organized the march was. And you got off in the morning, right? Or got there in the morning, it went to the march, and then came back that night, isn't yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it, was, that, it was that quick, but there, without incident. There, was no, mm -hmm. there were no incidents. And the churches were involved, weren't they? They were the churches, uh, fed you. The churches, the synagogues, hmm. the uh, community organizations. Um, it was a marvelous time because it wasn't a black movement. It was a multicultural movement. Mm -hmm. And all sorts of people joined and you know, were, were instrumental in uh, making this happen. And the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. Um, and that was the beginning of um, uh, legal civil rights um, actions by the government. Mm -hmm. um, some of those things have been eroded now. But that's, that was the work that A. Philip Randolph had done quietly, uh, in conjunction with the NAACP, the Urban League, who were also headquartered in New York City. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, the question is, I, I asked um, a colleague at Temple University uh, a few years ago, well, I was researched, I've done three books on Harlem, and so it was clear to me that no one, scholars were not sure of when things began and when things ended. And uh, so I said to, to this colleague, uh, when did Harlem Renaissance start? As my colleagues will do, he says, mm, I have to think about it. And it was months. <laughs> it took months. He called me up and he says, here's what I think. I think that the Harlem Renaissance began uh, when the first slave or tenant farmer realized that he had to get out of the South. Mm. And he dropped the reins of his mule and came north and wound up in Harlem. And then his cousins came and his uncles came and his grandmother came and their children came. And that was the beginning of what was erroneously called the Great Migration. Mm -hmm. It's a nice word for exodus. Mm -hmm. But there was an exodus out of the feudal south, which was feudal. Mm -hmm. It was feudal. And the south was a very dangerous place for many, many decades for black people. And after slavery, they weren't free. There was just another form of slavery, mm -hmm. tenant farming, these chain gangs, all those things. And when those people left, lots of times they left in the middle of the night because they were fearing for their lives. Mm -hmm. And you had white supremacist groups running rampant. Uh, you had the NAC, I mean, the Ku Klux Klan running rampant. Uh, I, I was in the Navy in the 60s and... Um, um, I was going to Charlotte uh, to visit a friend. Um, and the way I used to do it then was if somebody had a car, you know, we'd chip in for gas mm -hmm. and uh, we, you know, a bunch of sailors would go on a place together. So we get, we get in the car and we left the ship 
uh, I don't know, around 11 o'clock at night. You were in the Navy. I was in the Navy. And um, uh, somewhere in North Carolina, we, we uh, early in the morning, we get a flat tire. Mm. And uh, so we we get out and we're going to change. But no big deal. You know, we're going to change it. And while we're doing this, uh, a, 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 a cop pulled up behind us and he just sits there. He doesn't, doesn't get out of his car. He just sits there. And so it was me and I think four other sailors and one was Spanish, one was white and the other one was black like me. And, um, but we're all good friends. And, uh, the cop finally comes out of the car and he goes to the, to the driver who's the white guy. And he says, um, uh, you boys need any help? And he said, no, sir, we're fine. Thank you. We just got a flat tire. We're going to be on our way in a minute. He says, well, when you get this done, you, you want you boys to follow me. And, and we go, oh, my God, <laughs> what does this mean, you know? And we're on a highway, deserted highway. There's no traffic. There's nothing. You know, we're way on the, way, you know, wide shoulder. Uh, so we're not like in the, in, in the middle of the, the, the highway or anything. And um, we follow this guy into this little town. And you get in there, and it looks like a, a little small town from some, some movie, mm-hmm. uh, The Last Picture Show or something. And uh, we get out, and he gets out, and we're in front of this building, and it's this old-fashioned garage. It's got one big door, and it swings. he swings it open. And inside, we see there's some old movies, wooden movie seats. Hmm. And in front of the movie seats was this crate turned upside down, this hmm. wooden crate. And it's a piece of plywood nailed into the top of the crate. This guy comes out of a back room, sits behind the crate. He's got a hammer in his hand. Mm. He bangs the hammer on the crate and says, court's in session. And <laughs> said, that is like a movie. It is like a movie, right? It's like this is a cliche. Mm. So uh, he says, you boys are charged with obstructing a public highway. And the driver is, you know, he's unfazed. He starts complaining. He says, now you boys are going to be troublemakers in, in our little town. He won't stop talking. And we say to him, you know, can you stop, please? Because <laughs> we, we are in a bad place here. And so he takes the hammer, he bangs the hammer down again, and he says, charge you boys $250 or, 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 or 30 days in jail. Mm. So we put our heads together and we say, okay, we'll TV up. We'll find the $250. So we get up $250 and uh, we go to pay and... He says, no, $250 a piece. Oh. Fortunately, we were on leave, so we all had cash. <laughs> and again, we do it again, we re, 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 rejigger our money, and we come up with enough money mm. uh, to, for $250 a head and, uh, to get out of this town. So we got in our car and we drove back to the ship because we don't have any money now. So we, we had to go back to the ship where we, you know, we could yeah. be eat and sleep. There was nothing else to do. But that... That was my experience in the South, and, and uh, it stays with me now. Uh, and and uh, when I read about the Green Book, I, I understood exactly mm-hmm. what that was for mm-hmm. and how important it was to um, have, have a way for a safe passage. And right. so the Civil Rights Movement was not just a, a, an idea in my time, in my life. It was, it was absolutely essential. You know, one thing I took from this book is that there were really uh, descriptions of two Harlems. One was a construct of white society. It's a place you can go and hear music, and it's great. And even and white, white authors, writers went there, and they wrote books about it. Exactly. And as you say in the book, there was one, I forget what the total title was, but it used the N-word uh, and was a regular published book. It, it, was, it, was, it was the most popular 
novel of the Harlem Renaissance period, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. And if I could use the N word, it was it was the it was the N word in heaven. Yeah. And and this and this this book was written by a man who absolutely adored Langston Hughes. He adored Zora Neale Hurston, and he was a very sympathetic narrative about his experience in Harlem. Mm -hmm. And many people had the same experience, and it was an interesting time. Uh, And the writers who I um, read, uh, uh, I didn't read them in school either because they weren't offered in school. I read them after I was an adult. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went to school in in Connecticut, and I went to school in New York. Mm -hmm. And not even in New York were these people uh, where I could, could I find their books. Or, uh, in the 1960s, when, when James Baldwin was becoming famous, um, uh, it was almost as if James Baldwin was the first mm-hmm. popular African-American writer in American history. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, there was, you know, Zorna Hurston and Dorothy West came before him, and uh, Richard Wright came before him, and uh, these were accomplished writers, but... Their stories were not told completely accurately. So um, as I began to peer into the histories of the writers and the Renaissance, I discovered something else. It's just it's not, well, it is in this book. I'm working on another book now. Uh, uh, but the, if you can imagine, there was no black press until they started magazines in Harlem. Mm-hmm. There were no black publishers until they started uh, these entities in Harlem. And so black writers were grateful that white patrons came uptown. And in, in 1924, they had a dinner at the Civics, Civics Club in Manhattan. And uh, uh, publishers in Harlem arranged for publishers in Midtown to meet these writers. Mm-hmm. And these white uh, editors were delighted to meet these writers. Uh, and you have to remember, um, uh, progressives were looking for something new. Uh, 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 yeah, these were the liberals. Yes, the liberals were looking for something new. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing more shiny than Harlem. Mm-hmm. They came up there, they heard all kinds of poetry. There were Africans playing drums. Uh, there was all this sort of glitter mm-hmm. that was just enticing. And so the liberals just loved it. And they had a great time with it. And they were, they were sincere. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely looking for something new. And this was brand new. Mm-hmm. No one had re- ever read uh, a Negro novel. Mm-hmm. No one had ever seen a Negro poet. Not, 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 uh, it wasn't common. And all of a sudden you have Langston Hughes mm-hmm. who is writing, you know, what happens to uh, a raisin in the sun. Um, and uh, it's a very popular poem. Uh, everyone thinks that that poem is called a raisin in the sun, but it's not. It's called Harlem. Mm-hmm. And what he was talking about was, was if you read that poem, it's a realistic look at Harlem. People came from Harlem, came to Harlem from, I don't know, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi. And they were able to. Uh, in in those states, they were raisins in the sun, and they were just going to wither and die, mm-hmm. or, or or in the poem he says, or explode. And when they came to Harlem, they could a tenant farmer could could reinvent himself, mm-hmm. uh, buy himself a suit, and go hear hear Marcus Garvey give a, a thundering speech about black nationalism and feel good about himself. And so. Harlem was this place where you could reinvent yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, Dorothy West wrote a, a story for which she won a, a, a prize called The Typewriter. And in The Typewriter, you have a, a black uh, girl in a city like Harlem and her father. And periodically during the week, uh, the father and the daughter would uh, play a little game, a little skit. She was his secretary, and he was a businessman. 
and he would dictate a letter and she would type the letter <laughs> on the typewriter. Mm -hmm. And this was a little game that the father and daughter had. But what it was, was a way of building their self-esteem. Because in those days, a black man was not going to become a businessman. Mm -hmm. And in those days, a black woman was not going to become a secretary. Mm. Um, I can recall in the town that I grew up in, my sister was a business major at the high school. Uh, and, and one day she came home crying and my mother said, uh, well, why, are you, why are you crying? She says, uh, they won't let me in the business uh, program at the high school. My mother says, why? You have very good grades. Uh, you're, you're bright. I don't understand. So my mother went to school, and the teacher said, well, I I'm protecting your daughter because no one's going to hire a black secretary. Mm. And my mother was furious. Mm -hmm. And she went to the principal, and she says, this will not happen. You put her in that program, and uh, I don't know where you think we are, but we're not in the South, and I'm not going to tolerate that. But that sort of thing happened all the time. It was common. That's so, here. Yeah, that's here. Mm -hmm. That's here. Uh, and so um, those things weren't talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they've changed. Uh, but my mother was not going to tolerate that. And she was, you know, one of the things that she gave me is the ability to um, look at myself in the mirror and decide what it was that I want to be. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that's what the civil rights movement mm -hmm. was for, for things like this. But Dorothy won that prize in New York. That's how she ended up in Harlem. Mm -hmm. She came from Boston, hmm. where she had won all kinds of literary prizes. As a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old, she won all kinds of literary prizes. So when she came to Harlem, she was a, a, a dynamite uh, a person. And what I discovered is that her nickname was, uh, uh, they called it The Kid. Uh, because she was the youngest member of the Harlem Renaissance in mm. the 1920s. And uh, what I discovered is the kid was not just a kid. She was the most prolific uh, member of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, more prolific than Langston Hughes and, and, a, and a bunch of others that we all know. Um, but uh, Dorothy had the same literary agent as uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. And literary agents don't hire you, uh, don't take you on because they like you. Right. They, they take you on because you're going to make money for them. Mm -hmm. And Dorothy wrote short stories for the New York Daily News for 20 years. Mm. Uh, that's when newspapers, uh, the New York Times, all, all the papers ran fiction mm -hmm. uh, and poetry. Um, and her, um, her, her short stories were always um, anchored. They ran under a comic strip, uh, Terry and the Pirates, <laughs> and, and, uh, which is a, a famous uh, comic strip. And um, and that led me to do another book, uh, The Last Leaf of Harlem, which is what Dorothy called herself. She said she was the last leaf on the tree hmm. of writers who had come to Harlem in the 20s. Hmm. And she was the last, well, when I talked to her, she was the oldest living member. She was in her 90s then. Hmm. Um, and the story about Dorothy was that she stopped writing. Hmm. Uh, uh, that she, she wrote one book called The Living is Easy, uh, it was published in 1940. Uh, it was widely uh, read and well well received. But then she just disappeared. She stopped writing. That's what everybody said. That's what the history, history all the history books said that she stopped writing. It wasn't true. Um, what she did was she went to Martha's Vineyard. But if you left New York, you were out of sight. Mm -hmm. It's not like today where you could communicate from anywhere. You know, we have the internet now. You can be you know on an ice cap somewhere in Greenland or somewhere and still be. Uh, prolific and right, so I I set out to find out exactly what did her what did her writing life look like, mm -hmm. and she wrote. Dorothy had a writing career that spanned across at least seventy years, um, and the evidence is she she um, in nineteen eighties um, she was working uh, uh, at the um, um, on Martha's Vineyard 
writing for the Vineyard Gazette. Hmm. Uh, she wrote a column and all kinds of things she wrote for them. Uh, and uh, a woman named Jackie Onassis uh, was, was vacationing on Martha's hmm. Vineyard and she read Dorothy's column. She went by to see her and she said, what else do you have? And Dorothy says, well, I have this, I have this uh, novel that I wrote. And uh, uh, so she says, well, can I see it? And uh, Jackie was an editor at Doubleday. Mm-hmm. And she read the novel and she said, oh, we're definitely going to publish this. And the book was called The Wedding. Hmm. And it was a, a very uh, uh, interesting book, but about an interracial couple, which Dorothy had written about, but she was afraid to publish it in the 1960s. It wasn't a common topic that was popular in the 1960s. But in 1980, uh, that... that uh, kind of prejudice had was waning and and uh, uh, Jackie said she was going to publish the book so <laughs> they edited it and uh, unfortunately Jackie died before the book was published but Oprah picked up the rights and she made it uh, she made the wedding into a made-for-tv movie mm-hmm. um, and if you just look at that success I mean uh, some some people say well you know she only wrote two novels and my question to that is, you know, how many novels are you supposed to write? <laughs> you, you know, that that's just doesn't make any sense. You know, mm-hmm. Ralph Ellison wrote one novel, and he's world famous for uh, uh, The Invisible Man. So uh, that's just a silly criticism that she only wrote two novels. Yeah. You know, so there was really two uh, Harlems and two Harlem Renaissances. One was created for white society, and one was... Uh, black artists and politicians and um, people, organizers, uh, finding their voice, right, for the black audience, maybe for the first time. It was for the first time. And the other thing was that uh, everyone talks about this movement or this place, like it was this homogeneous place Mm. where when you arrived at Harlem, everyone was was happy to be around each other. These people did not get along. Uh, uh, they didn't like each other. Uh, they were politicians, and like all politicians, they argued with people who opposed their their, their ideas. Uh, w. E. Du Bois uh, 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 did not like Marcus Garvey. Uh, a. Philip Randolph did not like Marcus Garvey. They, and in fact, they started the Garvey Must Go movement, <laughs> uh, and they were helping J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> railroad him out of the country. <laughs> um, and it wasn't that they were vying for the same. Uh, audience or anything like that, but these were just powerful men with powerful ideas, and they did not tolerate uh, a dissent. Uh, they were not said. Uh, uh, I mean, the NACP uh, and uh, a guy named Walter White, White went to Washington with A. Philip Randolph, but they were not friends. Mm. Uh, they did not get along with each other, and uh, there were all these sort of multi prong movements moving in similar directions um, one of the, the the things that happened simultaneously was that many of these men began to call themselves new negroes mm. they wanted a new face for the negro mm. they wanted to get rid of the old slavery and step and fetch it and the old uh, mammy and the the butler and the um, farmer image of black people and they wanted a new face for mm. that black man in America. They wanted the face of a strident, self-confident, strong, thinking person. And that was one thing that they had in common. They wanted that image. Now, if you looked at a Pullman Porter, you saw a poised, 
eloquent, articulate. Man, most of them went to college. And uh, when you saw them, they were uh, porters on the train and they got the nickname that people would all call them all George. That was it. They were just George. They didn't care what their real names were. They just called them George. But with, these are the most respected men in the community. Mm -hmm. And if you went to Detroit or Chicago or Los Angeles and someone in the neighborhood or someone in the building was a Pullman porter, he was probably also a deacon in the church mm -hmm. and a very respected man in the world. And that was the image of Negroes they wanted to last. Mm -hmm. So there was this new Negro movement and it had many prongs and many leaders in many different ways. You had many publishers in Harlem who had their own magazines. Du Bois had the crisis. Um, you had uh, a Philip Randolph had the messenger. Uh, uh, Garvey had the Negro world. Mm -hmm. And these were platforms where they could speak to thousands and thousands of black people to persuade them to do this, to persuade them to do that, and to build up their self-esteem. Uh, and so they were all working simultaneously, but not in tandem necessarily. Mm -hmm. But all that, that uh, what we learned at the university is we, we welcome dissent. <laughs> because this, here's where you get debate, and here's where you get ideas, and students always... Um, make the mistake of thinking that whatever they think or say has to be something that I think or say and they quickly learn that no that's not that's not the way this works you can feel free to disagree with me mm -hmm. and let's have a, 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 a an argument let's have a, a, a not a raucous argument but let's mm -hmm. have a some disagreement because mm -hmm. the, 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 here, here where here's where truth emerges and so Harlem was this cauldron of political thought and uh, ideas um, not all of which were palatable and where do you think Malcolm came from? Nowhere. Malcolm didn't just spring up and become Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. He was schooled in this same atmosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Martin Luther King was schooled in that same atmosphere. Uh, and so out of that uh, uh, descent, you get change mm -hmm. and you get uh, movement. And that's how movements occur. And so Harlem was useful in that respect. And my, my impression now in, in Harlem is that it was as much of a uh, uh, an idea as it was a place. Mm -hmm. And you could carry your Harlem with you anywhere you went. So if you went to Chicago, you could find Harlem in Chicago on the mm -hmm. south side. Mm -hmm. uh, if you went to Los Angeles, you could find Harlem in the uh, uh, South Central somewhere where you have, uh, where uh, uh, people emerge like, um, uh, I, I'm not a fan of hip hop music, but uh, uh, I do like, uh, 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 there's an actor named Ice, his nickname is Ice, Ice Cube. Mm -hmm. And Ice Cube came out of a very rough place in uh, South Central Los Angeles. But look at him now. Mm -hmm. He's a movie producer. Mm -hmm. He is a man who reinvented himself. Uh, he's not a cliche. Mm -hmm. He's not a, 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 a drug addict. He's not a drug dealer. He's not a gangbanger. Mm -hmm. He's a successful businessman now uh, who makes films. Mm -hmm. And that's the Harlem atmosphere that I'm talking about, that idea that uh, you can just reinvent yourself. And so I, I love moving, pushing that forward. I love telling young people from any community that all you have to do is carry that idea around with you. Carry your Harlem with you and keep it in your head and don't let anybody discourage you. Uh, and then look for people who think like you. Look for people who, who, who support your ideas and help you. And then remember, uh, someone helped you you help someone else, mm -hmm. and so that's what happened in Harlem. So you had you had people who were um, um, when I was a kid, um, the the wealthiest people in Harlem were 
athletes, entertainers, uh, and uh, con men. <laughs> Uh, but they all got the same respect mm -hmm. because there was a rule about the, the con man didn't con people in the neighborhood. Mm. Uh, uh, and the athletes always came and they always came bringing gifts. And the entertainers were always fun and entertaining. But in Harlem, you could walk down the street and see uh, 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 a celebrity that uh, was in town for a weekend. Um, uh, Fidel, Fidel Castro, when he came to speak at the UN, hmm. didn't stay downtown. He stayed in Harlem at the Teresa Hotel mm -hmm. uh, because he felt more comfortable uptown. Right. Uh, and so that's what he did. And uh, uh, it's funny. I mean, and the, 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 the rumor is that uh, the Castro had the live chickens running around, <laughs> not always, <laughs> of, of the hotel. I, I'm not sure, but that's true. But uh, anyway, that's the rumor. I love that phrase, carry Harlem in your head. Do you, uh, how strong is that now? I mean, do you feel like, um, um, it seems like Harlem, when it was in the Renaissance, not, uh, and past 1929, that it was very vibrant and strong, and even though people were trying to destroy each other there sometimes, there was a real feeling and uh, uh, vibrancy there. How do you feel, um, not just in Harlem, but the state of uh, the country right now? Is there that, uh, are there enough people holding Harlem in their heads now? I think it gets lost uh, uh, sometimes uh, with this, um, you know, you have all kinds of tensions, Black Lives Matter, and mm -hmm. that, that riles people up when they hear that. Um, but in Harlem, Black Lives Mattered uh, mm -hmm. all those decades ago. Mm -hmm. And me, even now, when I go to Harlem now, I, it's a, it's, I feel like I'm home. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a comfort to me, not just because uh, um, Harlem is mostly black people because it isn't anymore mm -hmm. uh, Harlem is a very multicultural place and I love that idea and my idea is that Harlem a, a new renaissance is occurring right now because mm -hmm. uh, all sorts of people from all sorts of places are moving to Harlem um, Bill Clinton has a, an office in mm -hmm. Harlem and uh, but that's not the only one uh, he's not the only one there who mm -hmm. didn't look like the people I looked like you know that looked like me when I was a kid but Harlem is still a vibrant place. Mm -hmm. And you still have lots of entrepreneurs in Harlem. You have uh, 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 all kinds of new projects going on. It's, you know, I, I, I don't know what it would cost to live in Harlem these days. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's going to be pretty pricey. But the idea is that I don't think it's dead. I think that that idea is there. Uh, and you can carry that out. The other thing is this. You can conjure up that idea yourself. Mm -hmm. You can conjure up that kind of Harlem. When I hear Harlem River Drive, the song, uh, it reminds me of all the years back. And I can remember, I almost swoon when I hear it because <laughs> When I was a kid in Harlem, walking down the street, one of the things that was common in Harlem was music. Mm -hmm. And we still had record shops. And so in order to get customers to come to record shops, they put speakers outside. <laughs> so you could walk through this, this, the, the, the neighborhoods and hear all kinds of music uh, in the streets. Uh, and so I hear that, and that Harlem River Drive, dancing in the street, uh, all those things remind me of the Harlem that I remembered as a kid. And there were problems. There was lots of drugs in Harlem mm -hmm. then. There was lots of crime in Harlem then, and you had to be careful. Uh, that Harlem has waned now, um, and Harlem is a much safer place now than it used to be. But even when I was growing up, and I, as dangerous as it, could, as it could have been, you know, there were certain neighborhoods you just didn't go in uh, for, for fear of trouble with <laughs> gangs and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But those problems don't exist as much anymore as they used to. So I, I, I like the idea of Harlem as a... Um, an idea mm -hmm. that 
you, you know, there's a Harlem in Atlanta somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hear there's a you know vibrant Harlem in Atlanta. Chicago has a vibrant Harlem. Um, you go to certain uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. You go down there, and it's a very um, it's not homogeneous necessarily, but for example, uh, my daughter's moving from Chicago to uh, Greensboro because she wants her children to see how many PhDs per capita there are down there, how many master's degrees there are. Everyone down there is going to some school to get a master's in some, some, some advanced degree somewhere, and, she, and her kids are now, they're just in high school. Mm-hmm. Anyway, because there's that idea down there that you know mm-hmm. education is very important and in chicago it's very chicago's a very dangerous place uh for teenagers so she's leaving but she's i you know my my attitude is i say rachel you're going to find harlem she says yeah daddy i'm going to find my harlem <laughs> and i just like that idea because i think i think it gives young people um hope I, I can't tell you how many students that graduated from here uh who are now living in east harlem mm. and i was in Harlem a couple of weeks ago, and uh, uh, my sister put something about Facebook. And I get all these notes from former students. Say you were in my neighborhood, and you should have stopped by and saw and seen me. You know, and these are kids from Connecticut who, right. who they live in Harlem now. They're and they're they're carving out careers for themselves. They're singers. They're music musicians. They're dancers uh, who went to this school uh, and have good skills now. And now they're in the city that never sleeps and they're out there, you know, they're probably working as bartenders and waitresses to feed themselves, mm-hmm. but they're very talented people. And Harlem was known as a place where, you know, that attracted talent and, mm-hmm. it, and it still does. Mm-hmm. The Har- <clears throat> Harlem Renaissance is still going on, as it, you say in your book. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's still going on. And, and the critics who say that it died, I, I challenge them to tell me what specifically what died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when did it die and how did it die? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in some instances they say, well, the, uh, the, the goals of the new Negro were unrealistic. Uh, I said, well, you know, tell me why that is. Well, what was unrealistic about their goals? Um, they, they, they wanted to desegregate the military and they did that. Mm-hmm. They wanted to desegregate the federal contractors and they did that. They wanted to pass a sweeping civil rights bill and they did that Mm -hmm. they ended legal segregation in public schools and it's never tied to the harlem renaissance Mm -hmm. but that's who was doing it these were the engineers of this kind so this kind of progress Mm -hmm. and they all were in harlem nobody's from Harlem. i mean nobody of the none of these uh these leaders were from harlem Mm -hmm. uh they weren't born in new york they were attracted to new york and ironically um one of the most of them stayed at the ymca uh on 135th street when they first got to 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 harlem and it's still there Mm -hmm. Uh, the rates are probably higher than they used to be but it's still there um you know the 135th street library we used to be called the 135th street library and now it's called the langston hughes library and so they've cemented uh, uh, the legacy of their time in Harlem, and every generation has been able to do that. James Baldwin finally left the country because he couldn't take the uh, prejudice and the segregation anymore, and he lived out the rest of his life in France. Mm-hmm. But he was from Harlem. He was one of the few who was from Harlem. Uh, Thurgood Marshall lived in Harlem for many years until... Uh, 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 he was appointed uh, uh, the chief justice, not chief justice, but a justice of the, the first black man uh, in the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he lived in Harlem all those years. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's a lot of history 
that is not tied to any song right. or, or any f- fancy dance or some some speakeasy uh, club where people drank gin out of teacups. Mm-hmm. And that, that stuff happened too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was a very different Harlem um, that wasn't... If you read the history books, um, uh, they don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. Now, there are many books about Langston Hughes. There are many books about Thurgood Marshall. There are many books about A. Philip Randolph. There are many books about W.E. Du Bois, but they don't tie them to the Renaissance. Right. And so that's the significance. That's the difference um, uh, in my book to uh, the histories. And, you know, I'm not I'm not shy about saying that why weren't they why weren't they tied mm-hmm. to this renaissance mm-hmm. and, and, and and in fact the word renaissance wasn't even used until the 1940s mm-hmm. and that was by some downtown columnist uh and i'm not sure in what context they said that but you know you had uh you had all these newspapers you had the amsterdam news you had the new york age uh, these were powerful powerful uh, publications mm-hmm. that that wielded a great deal of influence on black people all over the country uh, and so the New York Age was just a powerhouse of, of a newspaper. And uh, the, the Amsterdam News is still, is still, still publishing mm-hmm. uh, today. Uh, but what they publish today, you know, there were... Here's another example. I, I discovered all of these stories written about Harlem. And that was my first book about Harlem, uh, A Renaissance in Harlem, because you had these very skilled journalists... Uh, I, you know, I've been an editor a long time, and I, I know good writing when I see it. And they had all these well-written stories about Harlem. Mm-hmm. I said, who are these people? I had never heard of them before. Uh, Vivian Morris is the one that uh, puzzles me most. She was the most accomplished of all these writers. They all worked for the, uh, the uh, Federal Writers Project, which was part of the New Deal. Mm-hmm. And they wrote these really wonderful stories about life in Harlem. They wrote about the churches. They wrote about Marcus Garvey. They wrote about the politics, and they wrote about the different religions. They wrote about fishmongers. They wrote about pushcart uh, vendors, all kinds of things. But if you cobble all these things together, you get a very vivid picture of what Harlem was like in the 1920s uh, up to the 1930s, late, late 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were very accomplished people. They came from all over the country, and they lived in Har- lived and worked in Harlem, mm-hmm. and so you have a legacy of journalism that's not been talked about at all mm-hmm. anywhere. Uh, you have um, the, the politics, and uh, I discovered something quite interesting to me. Um, I'm reading and I'm realizing that in the 1930s you had all these publications in Harlem. One by one, they folded. Um, because they didn't have the advertising that they needed. Mm-hmm. And, and then in, during the Depression, nobody had any money. So nobody was buying ads in these publications, so they died a, you know, an untimely death. Mm-hmm. Where did all these writers go? Mm. I found out. They secretly and quietly, not secretly and quietly, wrote about white people. Mm. They wrote novels about, with all white characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dorothy West, uh, in the, that's where she got the idea to write the, to do the wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a, a guy named Frank Yerby. Never heard of him. Never heard of Frank Yerby. Frank Yerby is a black novelist who wrote 37 novels. Mm. 37 swashbuckling novel, novels. Um, two of which were made into uh, major films. Uh, one of which was called The Foxes of Harrow. Mm. 
And the Foxes of Harrow is a clever, it's just sort of a, uh, his version of Gone with the Wind. And as a sort of post-Civil War mm. uh, uh, novel about a, uh, a guy named Fox who reinvents himself mm-hmm. and becomes a wealthy Southern landowner. And he's, he's, he's accepted by the gentry. But somebody smells something. There's something wrong with this guy, Fox. But it was a, it was a well, he sold million, he, he became a millionaire. And those people were, uh, Dorothy uh, Zorniner Hurst wrote a Swanee and the Seraph, uh, which was a, uh, a novel uh, about a Southern uh, white family. Um, I'm not sure where in the South, but what these people did. Dorothy West wrote those short stories for the New York Daily News mm-hmm. without race. Mm-hmm. Because the New York Daily News says, we'd love to have her write because she's a wonderful writer, but not uh, don't write about Negroes. Mm-hmm. So what these, these writers did was to keep writing and to keep publishing, they wrote about other cultures. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 um, Frank Yerby um, had a mul- all, usually had a multicultural cast, uh, and a black uh, character wasn't necessarily the lead lead character, but there were black people in it. There were uh, uh, mixed people in, it, mixed race people in it, um, and it was very clever mm-hmm. what they did mm-hmm. quietly, mm-hmm. and 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 they did it quietly because at the time they were called assimilationists, which is a pejorative mm-hmm. for a traitor. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not my opinion. My opinion is these are writers who uh, had to survive. Right. And so uh, 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 William Faulkner writes about black people all the time, and no one talks about it. It's not even an issue. Mm-hmm. Well, he's from the South. He knows, he's no, he knows what Southern blacks look and talk like. He knows their stories. He knows their happiness. He knows all those things. So, and so do black writers mm-hmm. uh, about other cultures. Mm-hmm. And so they felt free to do it. Now, they haven't been get, given credit for it yet. That's my next book. Uh, I'm going to... There are tons of novels that were done by uh, little-known uh, black people whose, whose novels were turned into motion, motion pictures. Mm-hmm. And that's a way of measuring how successful... The book was whether you know that's not the only way to measure it, right. but but is one way to measure it. And so what I like is this: they kept the the um, the spirit of the Harlem Renaissance alive mm-hmm. by continuing to publish. Mm-hmm. So they got their start in Harlem. They became known in, as Harlem writers, but then they moved on and they did what Michael Jackson did. They became crossover artists, mm-hmm. and that's what a smart artist does. Right, you perform for people who appreciate. You, your talent, mm-hmm. and so that's what they that's what they did, and so I give Harlem credit for this assimilationist uh, uh, movement too. It's a literary movement. It's a it's a subgenre of American literature right. that has not been covered. Uh, the scholars have not uh, 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 covered this very very much. Some have, but not very not very much because uh, I suspect that they uh, don't want to uh, to uh, whip up any kind of backlash mm-hmm. for these writers, but I don't think that that's going to happen. I think that they they deserve credit for being survivalists. And uh, Frank Yerby retired in Spain. He was a multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. I mean, he sold millions and millions. I, I think the estimate is he sold 50, 50 million copies of his novels, mm-hmm. which is... Which is funny. I, I uh, one of my former literary agents. Uh, I, I'm talked. I, I tell her this story, and the idea that we, you know to to pitch a, another book. She says, "Oh, well, you know, there's a small audience, uh, a small ac- academic audience that is interested in that literary stuff, but the general public doesn't really care about that." And I said, "She said in uh, 
uh, who is this Frank Yerby guy anyway? And so uh, she, she calls me back the next night. She says, wait a minute, that Frank Yerby? I said, yeah, that Frank Yerby. She said, I read everything he wrote. I didn't know he was black. I said, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. that, <laughs> that he was black. Uh, you read everything he wrote because it was good. It was popular. Right. And, uh, you know, it was Pulp Fiction is what mm-hmm. he wrote, you know, which was great. Great That's stuff. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And this history of uh, Harlan that I think a lot of people haven't uh, read about or understood yet, I certainly didn't, makes a fascinating story. Lionel Bascom's book is Harlem, The Crucible of Modern African American Culture. It's available now in bookstores everywhere. I want to thank Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who are the technical geniuses behind this uh, worldwide podcast. I want to remind you to search on iTunes or SoundCloud for WCSU Media for all the WestCon podcasts. Not all of them are as good as this one, but uh, they're all pretty good. And uh, we want you to uh, subscribe to the WestCon podcast and become fans of ours. I want to thank Lionel Baskin for coming on this podcast and uh, talking to us about this really fascinating uh, part of uh, American history. Thanks for having me, Paul.